Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ho, 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 and welcome to the special Christmas edition of the New Statesman podcast. I'm joined by George Eaton and Stephen Bush for a review of the political year. And then Stephen stays on and John Elledge joins us to talk about our favourite sieges in history. Yes, we're demob happy. Welcome to our special end of year roundup podcast where I'm joined by George Eaton, our political editor, and our Staggers editor, Stephen Bush, to review the political year. George, I'm going to start with you. What was your low point of the year? Well, the low points of the year has to be, I suppose, the, the Conservatives winning a majority. I mean, we, as usual, had uh, had hoped for a, a Labour victory. And and I suppose it was stunning in both um, in both that it meant five years of, of the Conservatives in power, but also in, in how I, like others, uh, expected a hung parliament. And it was a moment of... Um, Is that a moment of, of personal sadness? Cephalogical that, despair. That we all read the Cabinet Office manual or whatever it was, and I'm never going to get that two hours of my life back. Um, and on election night, I have to say, I think my personal low point of election, I think the, the most shocking moment, I think, was definitely seeing um, Mari Black beat Douglas Alexander, you know, overturning a 16,000 majority, essentially, um, with a massive, massive swing. You were quite upset about Ed Balls going, weren't you? Yes, I'd, I'd written um, a long profile of him as, uh, as Chancellor-in-waiting and um, had hoped to write a sequel <laughs> from the Treasury. So. Yeah, but uh, and Stephen, what about you? Um, I mean, so I expected Labour to fall short. Um, I had written a couple of days before about their organisers fearing a, only a one-point swing, which is what duly happened. I was expecting the Lib Dems to do better, which I found shocking, but I, to be honest, it's only now that they're gone that I care that they're not there. At the time, it was like, God, that was unexpected. And now it's like, oh, if only they were there holding them back. The thing I found um, difficult, even though it was, yeah, we, we knew that they'd get wiped out in Scotland, I found Douglas Alexander losing his seat uh, personally difficult because before I was um, at the Telegraph and I was freelancing and working at a bookshop, Douglas Alexander actually got in touch and said, oh, I really like your stuff, you should keep at it. And so despite the fact that there are lots of things about Douglas Alexander's approach to politics which were a bit flawed, I was sort of personally saddened to see him cast out i'm smiling one. because i suddenly thought this could be an opportunity to do my joke about the fact that he's now working for bono for six figures i.e he's not working pro bono <laughs> sorry that's actually ian leslie's joke but I, i've stolen oh, it yeah, yeah oh come on we let you do your joke of the week there's no worse than your classic joke of the week um yeah i think there's i think there's probably my lowlights too i think the highlight i guess is probably the fact that politics is is so interesting uh, and you have now some, you know, some real characters have emerged who are consistently interesting to write about, who 
I mean, I think that was a, that was a slight feeling earlier in the year. I don't know how you feel about this, George. Was that everything was kind of on train tracks, and and no one, had, you know, everyone sort of suspected something was not great in the Labour Party, but no one could kind of, you know, everyone was just holding on just in case it all worked. And now we've had a kind of dramatic shaking of the kaleidoscope. Um, whether or not you think that's a good or, or a bad thing, um, I'm going to ask you now to make some predictions for next year. Okay, so. End of 2016, we're sitting back here in 2016, slightly older, slightly more jaded. Uh, who will have won the London mayoral race? I think it'll be Sadiq. Um, he's a great campaigner, as his landslide victory in, in the selection showed. Um, Labour has a, still has a healthy lead in London. The, the most recent poll has given him a six-point lead over Zach Goldsmith. I think Zach Goldsmith has lots of talents and qualities, but I don't think he's a, he's as strong a candidate as, as Boris, who gave the Conservatives that uh, that boost in London. And um, I think he's managed to um, separate himself enough from from Jeremy Corbyn to to run his own on his own terms, which I think is is always important as a mayoral candidate. It seems to have become a job for the independent-minded. They don't like party men, mm-hmm. um, as 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 Ken and, the success of Ken and Boris shows. But he's also, I think, will still be able to draw on the loyalty of uh, of Corbyn supporting activists, which will be important and will give him a huge advantage in the in the ground campaign. That's a tough one for him, isn't it? Because he nominated Jeremy Corbyn and then he gave an interview very soon after Jeremy Corbyn was elected that was kind of, well, I would sing the national anthem, you know, uh, you know, and was quite, you know, well, I mean, it was pretty barbed in places. And then he seemed to then row back from him. So he's going to have a difficult decision next year about exactly what level of distance he wants to be his own man. But equally well, if the Labour Party is now flooded with you know, very pro-Corbyn activists, it would be madness to turn down those people kind of canvassing for you. Um, Stephen, w- would you agree with that? Are you going to go Sadiq or are you going to go Zach? Um, I think, yeah, I would provisionally say Sadiq starts as the favourite. He obviously has difficulty. He he only won because of Corbyn. You know, he, he won among new members and among um, uh, £3 supporters. He, he, he was behind Tessa Jow in every round among members until the final one. So... Um, he has this difficulty than he thinks, and he needs to put some distance between him and, and Corbyn. I think he's probably right. I think Londoners want to elect a king and not just a mayor. Um, and so they can't be seen as too close to whoever the leader of their party is. The flip side of that is, I think Zach Goldsmith is hugely overrated as a politician. I think he is, despite his kind of... I don't think the kind of person who voted for Boris, who usually votes Labour, cares about the fact that he's a rebel on recall and Heathrow. I mean, those are fringe issues for most Londoners. Do you think it's more about that he's Boris is good on Have I Got News yeah, For You? He's and he, funny, he's and charismatic. He, that had that sense of... Um, I keep going back to something that someone said to me about um, in Miliband when we were re-watching old Simpsons episodes, and uh, it was that episode where Blair had a cameo, and they said, oh... Ed Miliband could never have a cameo on The Simpsons and be recognised in America. And people like that Boris could be recognised. He he gives London that 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 heft, which I think Sadiq can, and I don't think Zach Goldsmith can. However, um, the good news for Labour is actually the only wounds which have really stuck on them in the in since the twelfth of September have been self-inflicted. However, the Labour leadership's propensity for own goals doesn't seem to have gone away. We have no idea what groups they will pick a fight with between now and May 2016. Uh, and so it may be that being the generic Conservative candidate is enough. My instinct, it won't be, but... Yeah. OK, well, let's look at someone that's got a slightly less rosy outlook for Labour, which is Scotland. We we pretty much expect there's another round of elections. The SNP will once again deliver a pretty thumping result. Um, you know, there are suggestions that they won't end up with any list MPs because they'll do so well in the constituencies. Will Labour come second behind them, or will Labour come third behind the Conservatives? I think second. 
But I think the idea that the Conservatives could redefine themselves as the only true unionist party um, is, is, is quite plausible. And I think it's something that um, Labour needs to consider very carefully. I think this is a really interesting thing with Scotland when I was looking at the fact that obviously uh, Ruth Davidson, their leader, is is on the she's a list MP and so is Kezia Dugdale, the Scottish um Labour leader. And there's a terrible thing that actually now you have a problem where if you're an SNP MP uh, MSP, you're desperate to be in the constituencies, but if you're anyone else you have to try and be on the list because it's the only way you're gonna end up in the Scottish Parliament. It's a really um interesting kind of it shows you even in a I mean we always talk we have this talk endlessly about AV and PR but even in situations like that you can end up with a sort of one party essentially breaking that system mm. what about you Stephen I think Labour will be second in the popular vote I think they may well be third in the constituencies because I think the Tories probably have a slightly better chance of surviving some of that way and if you look at where they're strong they're strongest where they will benefit from being a unionist party. There's places where Labour was strong and is still notionally strong and where it still has seats in the, in, in the constituencies are all places where it's lost votes by being a unionist party. So my guess is they will be first in the popular vote. Maybe they'll be first overall because of getting seats in the list. But under first-past-the-post... Um, people will still see it as being, um, it will, they, the Tories will come second. The interesting thing is, Scottish people vote, I mean, no one votes wrong, but the, basically the, the way that the media and people in Scotland see their electoral system isn't you have a first and a second preference in the list and the, mm. the constituency second, but they're actually, set, you're, you're sort of not meant to vote like that. They're completely separate. They're completely separate, but the interesting thing is everyone treats it as a second preference. I think the fascinating thing I think about Scotland is when, um, you know, is, well, it, not that the SNP bubble will burst exactly, but when will the kind of current total peak, you know, SNP incredible dominance of that system, when will that begin to fade? I was in Scotland just last week and I got the train from Dundee to Edinburgh and I went across the fourth rail bridge, which is, you know, very beautiful. Train nerds like me absolutely love it. But one of the things you can see from the window that is the fourth road bridge, which is closed, which is this massive artery in Scotland that is closed because, um, you know, they've, they found cracks in the concrete of it and and it, a letter emerged last weekend saying that you know they were warned about this this would be i mean if this were lay you know this was a labor government this would be fatal but i think the mistake is comparing the snp to a labor or a conservative government the comparison i think which is more instructive is to the anc in south africa unip in in zambia or any of these these post independence parties so yet they didn't win they obviously didn't get a, a majority for independence but their politics has been reconfigured by the referendum to one where it looks very like a post colonial state now as someone who's partially from a post colonial state i find the um, comparison that was made by some yes campaigners between places which have actually been under the imperialist yoke and a country like Scotland which has been enriched by being the imperialist yokers, fair, it sticks in my craw, but it's an important part of the political context uh, there. And I think the you have to ask yourself, would getting a major transport artery like that affect the popularity of the ANC or any similar party or, or Karma's party in um, in Botswana? No, it wouldn't. Um, and there was I th a very good tweet by Jamie Ross of BuzzFeed which said that, you know... It Scotland, uh, you know, SNP attack Labour in Westminster for not being an effective op opposition. And then in Scotland, 
they say, how dare, you know, how could you talk the country down? Why are you always attacking us? Why are you always so negative? And it's kind of like, I think that encapsulates the, the, the great position that they are in, which is this kind of insurgent incumbent position. And it's, a, it's one that's very hard to dislodge them from. Okay, so if we assume that those, well, okay. Um, so assuming as we, we've consensus on that, that there's a Sadiq win, but that there's, a, again, more bad news for Labour in Scotland. Although maybe not as bad, you know, that everyone's priced in absolute apocalypse at this point. So even a modestly, you know, good result would look good. Do you think that there is an attempted coup against Jeremy Corbyn by his MPs next year, George? I think there'll be MPs who will call for him to resign. In fact, I think several have already. But um, do I think there'll be a formal coup attempt against him? No, I don't. Because I think most um, shadow cabinet members will feel it's it's still too early that he'll have sufficient support among the membership that were he challenged, he would try and stand again and he he would either be back on the ballot automatically, the rules are ambiguous on this point, or that he would actually get the signatures he needs to stand again simply because MPs would be petitioned by so many activists, including their own uh, party members, that they'd find their own local members, that they'd find it um, imp- impossible not, uh, not to put in on the ballot. So for that reason, I think Corbyn will enter... Uh, his second conference in Liverpool as leader, and uh, and will still almost certainly still be leader at the end of the year. And Stephen, do you think there's a possibility that the opposite might happen? That actually the let's make it work faction might totally come to dominate, and people might just accept this is a fait accompli. Actually, all this you know, actually going out and attacking him is 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 clearly for the you know, it's not working. And actually, Labour begins to quieten down and just yoke you know, knuckles under. I doubt it because I, I think then there is no chance that he, in, in, unless he, you know, dies or decides to step down. But yeah, it, either either God or Corbyn himself are the only two things which can can move him. The reason why MPs are making noise is because their constituents are making noise. I think it is unlikely that Corbyn's popularity will turn around enough in the country for um, members of the. Because you basically have a group of people in the parliamentary party who are scared of their activists, a group who are scared of their voters, and there is quite there are very few MPs who have both had an influx of new Corbynite members and are in seats where it's a majority of two thousand or you know it's, they've got the Tories in second. So Oldham is a classic example where yes they had a vote increase, but it was relatively small for what you'd expect for a party in opposition at this stage in the parliament. Um, and the UKIP vote went up and the Green vote went down, which is the kind of classic Corbyn effect. They only have 70 new members there. So if you are the incumbent, if you're Jim McMahon, you're much more worried about people who voted Labour who are going, I don't think your leader's patriotic, than you are about 70 people. But um, my feeling is that what will happen is it will kind of get priced in, in the sense that, you know, that people, we know that news stories become boring through repetition. So people will stop, at least in the kind of the bubble, will get bored by doing Jeremy Corbyn isn't patriotic, Jeremy Corbyn isn't going to And it will sort of be seen as like, oh, that argument's, you know, it might the argument might still hold exactly true that when it comes to 2020, people will make those things. But it will seem to be boring to say those things, kind of cliched to say those yeah, things. Yeah, I think that's right. The argument I used on Twitter, which a lot of people then proceed to misunderstand and go like, but it didn't work out well for Nick Clegg, isn't that way within the Liberal Democrat Party, Nick Clegg is hated became a meme. And it didn't matter how much evidence there was and he was hated. Everyone just kind of priced in. And they almost forgot about it. And then, of course, on election day, the consequences of that hatred were destructively visited upon the Liberal mm-hmm. Democrats. And um, well, One final one, which is, uh, do you expect an EU referendum this year? I do. Um, and I Please think say that, that Wilby. Please let's get it over and done with. Yeah, I think I think David Cameron will be um, keen to get it over and done with because I think his fear will be that the longer you wait, the more likely it is 
as so often with referendums, that it becomes a protest against an unpopular midterm government mm -hmm. um, rather than a vote on the, on the issue at hand. And of course, it's so bound up with the, with the question of, of immigration and, and the polls are looking very close at the moment. I think if one does happen, I think it'll be a vote to stay, however, because I think, as we've seen, the status quo tends to prevail in referendums. It did in 1975, the last time we had a vote on EU membership. It did uh, in the AV vote. It did in uh, in Scotland. And it did in some ways at the general election in that David Cameron remained prime minister. Uh, so I think the, the case, I think, actually won't have too much to do with the success or otherwise of, of David Cameron's renegotiation, because I think in the end it will be... Uh, the much bigger macro question of whether EU membership is fundamentally in Britain's interests. And I think that case will be won on um, the areas of security and stability. And we know that fear is, is, is the most powerful emotion. And it's so a shame think... though, isn't it? I mean, I agree with you that I think there very well could be a, a fear campaign if we don't know what, what it's like, you know, do you want to be a kind of piddly little country, blah, blah, blah. But actually no one will make the positive case. Everyone will sort of say, what we need to do now is make a positive case for Europe. And then no one will, will make it. I don't know. I mean, Stephen, do you think that it will be a, it will be a, everything is terrifying. Do you really want to be outside the European Union when is the status quo so bad campaign? Yeah, I mean, because basically a third of the country will vote today and a third of the country will vote today out. And the undecided third is not going to be moved by a sort of hymn about social Europe. I am less optimistic than George about the chances of uh, of there not being a Brexit. I think um, the in-campaign is still struggling in the... I think actually their message is fine, but they have a lot of un unhelpful noises off about this kind of... You know, people talk, the Yes campaign has a positive message and they lost by 10 points. Um, and then people have a lot more... Scottish people have a lot more affection for Scotland than uh, people have for um, mm. for, 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 the, Brussels, for the yeah. EU. So a positive campaign would be, I think, disastrous for them. The fear is, you know, with the refugee crisis, with, with what's happened in Paris, is um, is there a way to fight and win a campaign in which the message is vote to leave, take control of your borders? Um, and my fear is that it's not, uh, that there's not. And particularly if we do have, as I think is likely, a June 2016 referendum, turnout will be low. And we know that the high turnout people in an EU referendum are people who want to leave. Mm. And also you'll be, that might very well coincide with another summer refugee crisis, more pictures of people on you know, drowned on beaches. Um, well, on that slightly sombre note, um, thank you very much, both of you. Thank you for being here all year. And um, hopefully we'll have much more from you in the new year. But for now, bye. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And together we host the New Statesman's Pop Culture Podcast, Seriously. If this sounds like something you'd be interested in, you can get this episode and everything else we've done on newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. Secondly, because it is the last podcast of the year, we thought we would rehash an argument that we had in the office for you. What could be more fun? John, <laughs> don't, don't laugh at the premise already, John. <laughs> it's like you're not even trying. It's no, like, I am trying. We're it's not going to justify this item. We just decided we'd talk about it. I missed because... the argument in the office. Well, this will be a brand new... Like, as for the listeners, this will be a brand new experience for you. I'm joined by John Elledge, editor of City Metric, and by Stephen Bush, editor of The Staggers. Okay, John, here is the question. What is your favourite siege? 
Okay, well, the reason this argument happened is because I published an article on CityMetric that was not about sieges, but its number on the CityMetric web format was 1683. And I had a moment of thinking, oh, that's the date of the siege of Vienna. And then I realized quite how tragic that was. And I tweeted that I'd done this, and suddenly there was a whole conversation about sieges. So it's my fault. Sorry. Okay, so tell me, what's so arresting about the Siege of Vienna? The Siege of Vienna... Who sieged it, first of all? uh, The Ottoman Empire. Ah. It it very much marks the end of the period in which the Ottoman Empire is dominating to the southern and eastern Europe, and after that, they they pull back. Like, I think even by 1683, the Ottoman power base is already in retreat, really. But, like, nobody's noticed, because, like, for, you know, 200 years, basically every time anyone in Hungary, you know, but, you know, moves to a new village and starts a family and farms with goats or whatever, every three or four years, this Turkish army marches in and kidnaps everyone and sort of puts them in slavery. Um, so that's kind of very much been the theme for the last couple of centuries of, of European history. 1683 is really the sort of the end of that period. The, the Ottoman army kind of sweeps up through the Balkans, sieges Vienna, doesn't really get in. And and then that's it. After that, there's a sort of 300 year decline that ends with the Ottoman Empire collapsing after World War One. See, when we started looking at this question, I started thinking which sieges immediately sprang to mind, and my two nominations were either Stalingrad or the Siege of Paris because they it went on for so long they had to eat the zoo animals. And then I realised something kind of strange about the whole siege thing. I had sort of presumed that sieges ended really with the invention of modern firearms, because when you think about sieges, you think about castle defence and you think about the fact that it was a lot of people armed mainly with sort of arrows, boiling oil, that kind of thing, against people with siege towers, which were, you know, were usually made of, of wood and things like that. So sieges went on a lot longer. What, what, do you know when the last siege was? Um, I was uh, showing my typical dedication to research for these items. I was just looking at the Wikipedia page for sieges in history. Um, and there is definitely a switch around the sort of late 19th century where you kind of go from these, you know, full-on military sieges of cities to if if you look at um the recent list of sieges it's generally sieges of individual buildings uh by the security services while there's some kind of group of extremists hold up inside so my favorite so the moscow theater siege yeah exactly that kind of thing like my favorite one i just learned about was that in 1997 the texas republic separatist group uh which has about eight people in it locked themselves in a building somewhere in in the state of texas declared that the state was now independent and started ringing other countries for military support um, while they were surrounded by FBI agents and... and so basically just that zone. room seceded. Yeah. Um, and it didn't really, it didn't really go very well. Like nobody actually died, which is good. Yeah. But, but, but I mean, in some ways it's, there's almost a sort of pathos to the fact that nobody even died in this siege. It's like, come on guys, you're just, this isn't a serious secession, is it? This is, this is just you being silly. Why don't you come out? And we can talk about this. There's no, there's no dignity to it. Uh, and actually one of, one of the siege's, um, children begged them to come out because she didn't want to have to take her, her baby daughter to her mother's funeral. And that kind of killed the siege. I wish, wow, I wish I could end all sieges like that. Yeah. It's quite touching. Um, it's Steve, not Stalingrad, though, is it? I mean, Stephen, do you have a favourite siege? Um, I was always a, a more um, kind of arty-farty historian. I, I, I like, you know, the development of gardens, novels, you know, the, the history of religion, which obviously there's quite a lot of killing in most of the history of religion. Um, but, so, but so I'm going to say um, Leningrad, because Leningrad, um, 
he's, he's, so when Shostakovich wrote his uh, symphony about the siege of Leningrad, he did it during the siege of Leningrad. And the, the you know, whatever, whatever, whatever Philharmonic Orchestra it was, so one of the great Russian Philharmonic Orchestras, played it for the first time while there were quite literally German 8080s outside firing stuff trying to get in but yeah you are exactly right then the, the sort of the peak of uh, sieges end the second that air support becomes a thing most modern sieges are either about loss of life or a desire not to destroy an asset or they're in a very small location um yeah, because I'm just thinking about Civ, which is where I get most of my knowledge about history, and I think that the Great Wall of China ceases to give you a defensive bonus once artillery has been invented. Although, of course, the Great Wall of China was it was never a particularly effective defence. Um, there were um, there were barbarians crossing the wall while it was still being completed at the other. You know, while while it was still under construction at one end, there were barbarians just like going. By the way, this is obsolete, <laughs> and crossing it at the time using the old military manoeuvre of walking round. Yes, yeah. I mean it, it, it's. it's the, to lose our remaining listener uh, at this point, um, <laughs> wall, wall building and siege engineering are two distinct historical phenomena. Wall building is mostly psychological, um, particularly in China. The building of walls is more about uh, what various dynasties wanted to project. I've now, uh, so if you haven't read it, I really recommend *The Great Wall* by Julia Lavelle. Probably one of the the best studies of Chinese. Wall I'm sorry, it's Christmas, and you've just recommended people read a book about walls. <laughs> a very. I know, good I'm book sure it's a really walls. good book, but it's. I mean, imagine her going to her publisher, going, "Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it to you. It's a book about walls." You got anything on yeah. doors? No, windows? No. Okay. Um, I, I have a wall, a, a wall comment. If we'd like to continue the wall, yeah, thing. yeah, hit me. One of the things that people forget about Hadrian's Wall is that they there is a second one, it's the Antonine Wall. That was kind of built between um, the Clyde and the and the, and the fourth, um, and you know the the Roman Empire kind of tried to to the Hadrian's Wall was only over the boundary for about ten years, and then they tried to build this other wall, and the problem is people did kind of keep you know invading and killing everyone, so they pulled back to Hadrian's Wall. I but, like that. That's like the kind of Roman Empire equivalent of those people who grow Lylandii hedges right at the edge of their boundary, and then they have like a ninety year dispute about the fact that it's just edged. You know, they're basically trying to make their garden slightly bigger, just pushing it like an inch every year. It does look really silly if you look at the map of the Roman Empire. The boundaries are generally you know deserts or the Rhine or the Danube. There's a big physical feature there um in britain they get as far as kind of you know northern england build a wall and say right we don't want that bit we never wanted that bit in the first place we just you know you do what you want as if like they hadn't just like roman military force was not enough to conquer scotland so they just pretended they never wanted it in the first place i know i'm gonna i'm gonna go out on a limb here and assume that our remaining listener is not scottish but if you are thank you very much for sticking with us and i'm sorry for what i'm about to say but i mean the thing is scotland was a a desert in the in terms of the uh (laughs) No, no, think about it. You are a, you are from the Mediterranean or you're from North Africa. Mm. And, and the bulk of Roman troops were almost certainly from North Africa or from, from the Mediterranean. And you're in Scotland. The world was, the world was cooler then, not just because of, uh, of, uh, of our, uh, I'm really hoping the one listener's not a climate change denier. Um, not just because of man-made climate change, but because of, um, environmental trends, which are, you know, are not due to our, so oh. Scotland was really nitty so Scotland and quite was misty really and got cold. very dark early and in the winter. Yeah, and then you have some had people... more Labour voters in those days, though. <laughs> and you ha- had people who actually liked living there and had lived there for a long time. So it is exactly like move it, not being able to get into the Germanic forest, not being able to cross the desert. It's just now, of course, because Scotland is a, a civilised 
pleasant place to visit. We find it hard to imagine it as a, effectively as, as difficult for the Roman army as the the Vietnamese jungle was for the U.S. Army, but it was uh, analogous to. I'm, I'm just saying, if you look at the map, it's like this is visibly a mark of military failure. They couldn't get the last, you know, quarter of saying, the country. If, if the second you can like wire me up a flushing toilet and a bath from ancient technology, then you can throw shade at the Roman Empire. But until then, mate, yeah, go back to your maps. Like... Like... <laughs> That's true. I've, I've conquered hardly any sort of rainy Atlantic. You don't even have a strigil. Thing I'm thinking of, you know, those things. These, anyway, long story about things that the Romans used to use in the bath. I mean, I'm sure you could. Maybe we'll get you one for Christmas. Fictional sieges. You mocked me for saying that Helm's Deep is an excellent fictional siege, but it is, and not least because spoiler alert for Lord of the Rings, they end up doing something that was done in in real castle sieges, which is sending huge amounts of explosives in underneath the foundations. Which is quite an impressive thing to do in a big castle siege. I just don't really like Lord of the Rings very much. I think it's one of the most overrated books ever. It's just not my... I, I can't bear it. This is, a, this is not a rational opinion. I just think it's terrible. Okay, so favorite, your favourite fictional siege? Uh, I would probably go with the siege of King's Landing at the Battle of the Blackwater, which happens in the second of George R.R. R. Martin's... Uh, Song of Game Ice of, and Fire. Yeah, you yeah. can't call them Game of Thrones or yeah. Word Letters. Um, but it's called The Clash of Kings, that one. But it's the end of season two, for those who've been following along with the TV series. I think that's kind of... It, it, I, basically, it's just Tyrion is great, is, is my whole point here. There's, there isn't really much to it than that. I just really like the dwarf. Okay. Stephen? Favourite fictional siege? Um... I'm sure there's one in the Narnia books, you know. I've got my, I've got this. I don't of... think there is. Most of the, of the battles in Narnia are on open terrain. Uh, the battle at... Um... Aslan's Howe in uh, Prince Caspian is is on open countryside. Yeah, the uh, last the battle in the last, last battle, battle is just a big proper old yeah. school like everyone on a plane. Yeah, back to running the, back they do literally the wall have God on their side, which um, I mean, that that, that kind of helps in any siege situation when you actually have the personification oh, of the deity but, working for you. Although actually, my fa- I read my favourite book in the Narnia series, which is surprising considering it's really the most problematic one by a country mile. Yeah, the horse and his boy. Um, I can't remember anything about that one. The horse and his boy is the one which doesn't have any Narnia, any children from our world. They've got a lot of sort of Saracens in it. Yeah, it's about um, a boy who's who's brought up in Calamon, which is the uh, the the Arabic country, and he runs away from his uh, his adopted father uh, with uh, a a, with a yeah with a talking horse who's been kidnapped, kidnapped and taken back to Calamon with um, uh, Arabis, who is. She's she's not quite a princess, but she's mm. a you know she's a a quasi Arabic quasi princess, and um, and I I really loved it as a small child. Um, partially, I realised when I read it for the first time as myself because my mother was heavily boulderizing it and getting rid of all <laughs> of the stuff about how cruel the Calamans were, but also because the the number of books with ethnic minority characters in is quite small. And Aravis is feisty. She yeah. she fights. She shoots. She's um you know you know. And uh, but, but there are many things about it which, when you read it as an adult, are uh, are difficult. Is it really less problematic than the last battle in which the character of Susan doesn't get to go to heaven because she she's got interested in lipstick boys? Lipstick and tights, yeah. literally lipstick and, and I think they sort of pantyhose. She also doesn't get to go to heaven because she stops believing in God, which is is more understandable. But there's also a it turns in... out everyone it's a bit. It, it turns out everyone's already dead, doesn't it? It's yeah. like. But Susan gets wow, to live, so there's still the possibility that, of course, then it, it works out in the end. But the horses and his boy has a siege uh, at the castle in Arkenland, uh, which I quite like. Um, you know, I, th- I actually, a part of me thinks I should go and reread those books, but I, I just think they're going to be 
So they are going. It's going to be cruel to find out how much there is weird stuff in them, isn't there? I think, to be honest, actually... The magician's nephew's probably safe. They hold up better than... Yeah, they hold up better than you expect. There's the awful bit in uh, Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe uh, where uh, where Santa said... Where one Father Christmas turns up, which is <laughs> just weird in itself. Father Christmas turns up and is an arms dealer. Uh, I love and... that Disney didn't put that in, that that's already in the original book. You think, yeah. God, this is awful. They've ruined this book in the film. But no, no, it's there. It's in the text. Yeah. I don't remember that. I've, and, I've, I've so yeah, and then that. Santa does turn up and hands out some weapons. Yeah, he, <laughs> but he hands like the the women bows, and um, oh, yes, and they, they go, are we are then. we fighting in the battle? And he goes, no, war is ugly when women fight. <laughs> By the and then Santa like goes off to his MRA rally. Like, um, you knew Santa used to work for Coca Cola. Didn't he used to work for BAE Systems? Did yeah. you? I forgot uh, about that. Yeah, they don't let the they don't let the girls fight, even though you think they. Also, if you're going to have a self defense weapon, don't they get they get daggers though? They get little daggers, don't yeah, they? In case anyone tries to and jump. And actually, C.S. Lewis does get more um, enlightened from a low base as they <laughs> as they go on, which I always like thinking. So he writes, he wrote Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe, which is the first one he wrote for his niece. And then as she gets older, so Jill, um, who's kind of the replacement, because it is a lot like Doctor Who, and then basically the companions just just vanish. Um, in the Jill, who's sort of the replacement, uh, Lucy uses a bow. She fights in battles. She's in many ways more heroic than than Eustace, who's the sort of male companion. Eustace is him. kind of supposed to be a bit puddingy, doesn't he? Yeah. He just sort of hides at the back. And he kind of, yeah, he does sort of become more. It's very much the Adric of the uh, Narnia novels. Mm. Well, we've, so we so we seamlessly toured through Lord <laughs> of the Rings, Narnia, now Doctor Who, now. Um, uh, maybe we could just put in a spoiler for Star Wars at the end just to finish this Christmas. You'll never believe who it turns out is Luke's father. Oh, John. Uh, luckily, none of us have seen Star Wars. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So we won't do that for our, our listener, for the benefit of our <laughs> Happy Christmas to you, sir or madam. And thank you very much to John or Stephen. Ho, ho, ho! It's time for Stephen's Christmas Joke of the Week. Why does Ed Miliband like advent calendars? Because he gets to open the door to number 10. No. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.